You are now listening to the May 14th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and equipping the saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee. Hello everyone, it's June Park from Near My God to Thee, where we look into the background of a hymn and reflect upon its meaning in a deeper way. What makes you happy? Perhaps it's your children. It could be your successful business or the good job you have. Of course these things can make us happy. However, how long can these make us happy? If we think about it, these can only make us happy for a little while. Furthermore, When we leave this world, these can no longer make us happy. Despite that, many people put all their effort in chasing after these things during their lives. Only our Lord can truly make us happy, not only in this life, but for eternity. The joy we gain in Him is true and eternal joy. However, it's not that easy to realize this truth. There was a woman of faith who realized this truth after a costly sacrifice. After she realized this, she wrote a hymnal poem. Let's listen to the hymn for a moment. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus and to take Him at His word, just to rest upon His promise and to know, thus saith the Lord. Louisa Stead, who wrote this hymnal poem, was born in Dover, England in 1850. She accepted Jesus as Savior when she was young and moved to Cincinnati, Ohio at the age of 21. One day she attended a revival and she realized that God was calling her as a missionary. Therefore, she was determined to go to China for missions and received missionary training. Unfortunately, during missionary training, she had a health issue and had to give up becoming a missionary. She then lived an ordinary life as a wife and mother. Through a drama, we'll see the background of how she ended up writing the hymn, "'Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus." Louisa dreamed of being a missionary, but when her health worsened, she gave up her dream of being a missionary and lived as an ordinary wife and gave birth to a daughter. Although she wasn't healthy, she lived happily as a wife and mother. In 1878, her family went on a vacation to a beach in Long Island, New York. 
Dear, it's so beautiful here. Yes, I'm glad we came here for our vacation. Lily, are you having a great time? The whole family was enjoying their vacation. Suddenly, they heard someone shouting for help. Dear, do you hear this? What is this sound? It seems like someone is shouting. Oh, it looks like someone is drowning. Dear, stay here for a moment. Dear! Luisa's husband ran to the place where a boy was drowning in the waves and shouting for help. There was no one who would go in the water and save the boy. Her husband, who was running from afar, went into the waves as soon as he saw the boy and swam towards him. Whew! Whew! Don't worry! And wait a little! Whew! Whew! Save! <laughs> Me! <laughs> Her husband swam through the waves and grabbed the boy. The boy was so scared that he grasped her husband's head in desperation to live. Eventually, her husband couldn't overcome the boy's strength and drowned in the water with the boy. Luisa saw her husband dying in the water, but she couldn't do anything. Luisa felt so guilty for not doing anything as she saw her husband die, and she cried in sorrow for days. <laughs> God, why? God, if you're really there, how can this happen? My husband was trying to save a life, so why did you take him away? Why did you allow this to happen to me? Why? How am I supposed to live now? Lord. <laughs> Luisa cried for many days. She didn't have any strength left. She was exhausted from crying and collapsed. Lord, only you can give me comfort. But why aren't you saying anything? Are you just going to leave me like this? Luisa was pleading with the Lord. Then she suddenly thought of a phrase in her heart. There is nothing besides me that can be your joy. Yes, Lord, there is nothing that I have that is eternal. Only you, O eternal Lord, are my true joy. Luisa was suffering in the reality of something she could not understand, and yet she resolved to trust in God alone. She was determined to put her hope in eternal things instead of things that will disappear. As time passed and her sadness subsided, she began to remember her past dream. In the past, God called me as missionary. I had to give that up because of my poor health. But if the Lord called me, then I must go on that path regardless of my health. Lord, I will walk that path. In the midst of her sadness of losing her husband right before her eyes, Louisa realized God's providence and placed her hope in heaven. She then wrote a poem that expressed her feelings.
I'm so thankful that I could depend on Jesus, who is my Savior. Since He promised me eternal things, I have nothing to doubt. Oh, precious Jesus, since You promised and have shown me so much evidence, please pour Your grace upon me so I can trust You more. After losing her husband, Luisa Stead realized that her true hope is in Jesus Christ. She regained her calling as a missionary and went on missions to South Africa with her daughter. She served in Africa as long as her health allowed and passed away in Zimbabwe in 1917. Her daughter Lily shared the gospel of Jesus Christ in the places where the gospel hasn't been reached, just like her mother did. At times, God allows very difficult things to happen. However, through such hardship, God will reveal to us what is most valuable. That is why He is faithful. I hope we will believe in His faithfulness and depend on Him alone. We'll end near my God to thee. Goodbye.
precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him more, oh, for grace to trust Him Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is, Don't Miss the Point. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. So let me ask you a question. Is this possible in your life? To do all kinds of things, maybe even good things, but get to the end and realize you actually miss the whole point. Is that possible? I think it's, it's not just possible. It happens all the time. In this world, I would say it's not just possible. It's probable. Which is why Jesus says these words. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is straight from his mouth in Mark chapter 8. Like, it's, it's possible to gain the whole world, to have it all, like everything. Like, think everything that Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos own. You're just getting started. You can have it all, like all the success, all the money, all the fame, all the glamour, all the everything, this, the whole world. Jesus says, you can have it all and in the end miss the whole point. So how do you make sure you don't get to this point? And if I could just remind us, like this point, the end of our lives, could be tomorrow for any one of us. I trust we, we all realize we're not guaranteed to make it to 70, 80, 90. And we're not, we're not guaranteed to make it to the end of this gathering tonight. Like, our lives are a myth. They're here for a second, gone the next. So, but at some point, at any point, it's going to come to an end. How do we make sure when we get to that point we've not missed the whole point? And I just want to show you Three truths in what Jesus said right before he used these words in Mark 8. Three truths, and, and, and I, my hope is these truths will just lead us before Jesus. So the, the main event, just to be really clear, the main event tonight is not any of the talks that have happened, this talk, 
the main event is I want to lead you just a couple minutes from now to be at the feet of Jesus. Saying, maybe for some of you, in a defining moment in your life, I, I want my life to count for what matters most forever. And maybe for some others, uh, a refining moment in your life where you say in, in this arena tonight, I'm refocusing on what matters forever based on these three truths that come straight from Jesus' mouth. So if you're taking notes, here's number one. First truth, Jesus, and this is super simple and extremely significant. Jesus came to give us life. Actually, let me rephrase that. Jesus died to give us life. Jesus died to give us life. So Mark chapter 8, if you want to follow along, and I don't know if we got it on the screen or not. Is that a no? We're not, we don't have it on the screen? Okay. I can't see. Okay. He began to teach them. The Bible says, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. So let me say that one more time, because it's not on the screen. I want to make sure this we all hear this. Jesus began to teach his disciples that he, the Son of Man, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. So that sentence that I just read represents the greatest news in all the world. How Jesus died to give us life. So I, I'm guessing not everybody in this room has grown up in church or been in uh, Christian settings even like this. Some of you, and, and, and you've never heard this truth, others of you have grown up in church, maybe even a lot of Christian settings, settings like this, but you've, you've had a hard heart toward this truth. Or this seems like just kind of, okay, yeah, yeah, I know that, in a way that you're missing the significance of this reality. The reality that every single one of us in this arena has been created, formed, fashioned by God himself. That he has made us fearfully and wonderfully in his image for relationship with him. You and I, every single one of us in this room, created to experience life in relationship with God. We're talking about God, the creator of the universe has created you to experience life in relationship with him. Problem is, every single one of us in this arena has rebelled against God in our relationship to him. It looks different in every single one of our lives, but we have all, the Bible calls this sin, sinned against God, turned aside from God and his ways to ourselves in our own ways. We know better what is best for our lives than God, so we think. And we've run into all kinds of things in this world apart from God. This is why we have evil and injustice and hurt and pain and sorrow and suffering in this world, because all of us have turned aside from God. And not just in this world. When we think about eternity, for all who die in this state of separation from God, the Bible clearly teaches that all who die in their sin before God will spend eternity experiencing God's judgment due their sin. 
like forever and ever and ever. For all of eternity, without end. The Bible uses the term in Romans or Revelation chapter 14, forever and ever. Think about it. And ever adds nothing to the meaning, but it just lets it soak in. Without end. Experiencing separation from God and judgment due sin. The Bible calls this an eternal hell. But the good news of the Bible is that God loves us, you and me, and he has made a way for you and me to be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to relationship with him. God has come to us in the person of Jesus to make a way for you and I to experience life. Even that reality is revolutionary. I was having a conversation in a country in Southeast Asia with a couple of guys from different religions. We were out sitting outside one of the temples uh, that they worship in, and we were having this conversation. They knew each other pretty well. I had just come into the conversation, was meeting these guys, and they were talking about our different beliefs. They knew I was a follower of Jesus, and they said, basically, they were kind of talking about how we all... Um, we may use different names and say different things, but we kind of essentially believe the same thing. Like our religions are fundamentally the same, just superficially different. I said it, I listened for a while and I said, it's almost like you guys picture God or whatever you want to call him at the top of a mountain and we're all at the bottom of a mountain and I may take this path up and you may take that path up, but in the end we'll find ourselves in the same place. And they smiled, they said, exactly, you understand. I said, let me ask you a question. What would you think if I told you that the God at the top of the mountain didn't wait for you to find a way up to him, or me to find a way up to him, but the God at the top of the mountain actually came down to us where we are? They said, well, that would be great. I said, that's the difference. This is the greatest news in the world. God has not left us alone in our sin, in a world of suffering and sorrow and death. God has come to us in the person of Jesus, and he has done what no one else could ever do. He's lived a life we couldn't live, a life of no sin. He's died on the cross to pay the price for sin. Even though he had no sin to die for, he chose to die on a cross to pay the price for the sins of all who would trust in him. And the good news keeps getting better because he didn't stay dead for long. Three days later, he rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death itself. Like rose from the grave. Just picture it. Like you go to somebody's funeral tomorrow. You see a body put in the ground, dirt poured over that coffin, and then you leave. And next week, that guy comes up to you on campus and says, hello. That's crazy. It's crazy good. It's the greatest news in all the world. Death has been defeated. And eternal life, not death, eternal life is possible for everyone who puts their trust in Jesus. And only for those who put their trust in Jesus. There is no other way. I remember being on campus at University of Georgia and I remember one day in and day out on that campus, like hearing all kinds of different beliefs and thoughts. And I remember I had a speech class one day and it was, it was my day to give a speech. I decided to give a speech on, on the good news of the Bible. And I shared what I just shared here. And then they got to ask questions afterwards. And I'll never forget, first person to ask questions, uh, her name was Jane, sitting in the class. She said, uh, in the speech comm class, she said, uh, I just got a question. Are you telling me that if I don't believe in the Jesus you're talking about, that when I die, I will spend eternity in hell? 
And I never had to put quite that way in front of quite that many people. And I began to sweat profusely. And all these eyes like trained on me. And I'm looking back at Jane and I said, I said, Jane, uh, we all have sin in our lives that separates us from God. And no matter what we do, we can't get rid of that sin. And the only way that sin can be addressed in our lives is through what God has done in his grace through Jesus. So, yes, apart from trusting in him, you'll spend eternity in, in hell when you die. And immediately sighs go up across the room as the arrogant, narrow-minded Christian is standing there in front of them. And I remember Jane came up to me right after class. She said, that's the most arrogant, closed-minded thing I've ever heard anybody say before. That's so offensive. She walks off. I remember, I remember wrestling with that. I remember walk, where I was walking on campus one day where I'm just like, is this, I don't want to be closed-minded, arrogant. Is this true? I began wrestling with that. It's true. It's like Jesus is the only way to God. I wrestled through that all the end of that semester. We left for the summer. I came back at the beginning of the fall semester, and I walk into class, another speech comm class. You'll never guess who's sitting in class. Jane. She turns around. She's like, I want to talk to you afterwards. It's like, okay. <laughs> and we had had many, many conversations since class that day. But it was every conversation. It was like, you ever in conversation with somebody, it just seems like every word is just bouncing off a brick wall. It just doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. She's like, I want to talk to you. I said, okay. So I wait outside in the hall for an after class. She comes up to me, and she start walking. Long story short, she says to me, David, I just want you to know, this summer I found out, realized Jesus is the only way to relationship with God, and I've trusted in him to save me from my sins. Now I know that when I die, I'm going to heaven. And I remember I remember hearing Jane say that. She began to describe, like, I figured it out. Like, it's not, it's not about all these different ways. She said, and this is what I would say to anybody in this room tonight who's wondering, like, why are there not other ways? Like, there could be a thousand ways. We would want a thousand and one. The issue is not how many ways there are. Their issue is our autonomy. We want to make our own way to God. And the good news of the Bible is that God has made his way to us. That Jesus has died, he's given his life so that you and I might have life forever. That's the first truth. Now it leads right into the second truth. So here's the second truth. If we want to live, then we have to die. So Jesus died so we might have life, but if we want to live, then we have to die. So this is what Jesus says right after this. He calls the crowds to him after he's talking about how he's going to die for them. He calls the crowd to him with his disciples and he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let him deny himself, like die to himself. Take up a cross, an instrument of death. In order to live, we have to die. Say, so what, what does that mean, to, to die, to deny ourselves, take up a cross? Well, clearly, part of this means dying to sin, dying to 
desires for this world and our ways over God and his word and his ways, dying to sin and the pleasures and pursuits that are offered to us in the world through disobedience to God. If we want to live, we have to die to ourselves and our ways of doing things and our desires in this world to live for his ways according to his word and his desires. And when I was praying about this night, like Ignite Auburn, here's a, here's a picture that came to my mind. I don't know if you know much about the story of the church in South Korea, but the church grew in South Korea from less than 1% Christian in 1900 to by 2000, there were 10 million followers of Jesus in, in South Korea. Like massive like movement. Talk about ignite. Like a few thousand Christians, 10 million within a century. And it all started at a meeting, 1907. It's called the Pyongyang Revival. And what happened to this meeting is a small group of Christians got together and the spirit of God visited them in a way none of them had planned and they began spontaneously confessing sin. One on this side of the room, another on this side, another. They just started standing up and crying out in confession of sin, like audible confession of sin, and with tears in their eyes. And then more people would stand up and they'd fall on their faces and they just start weeping and crying out in confession of sin, confession of sin against each other, hidden sin that nobody else knew about. And this went on for hours into that first night, and the next day, and the next night, the next day, and the next night. And from that began a movement that would spread to millions of people following Jesus on the Korean Peninsula. Why? Because people began to get serious about confession of sin. And I just... I was praying about this night. I was just thinking like how rare that is among us. Like how many times have any of us, even if you've grown up in church, and I've spent most of my life in church, how many times have we been in a setting where people are just crying out, like weeping, because we're confessing sin and we're turning from it. Like we, we have bought into a a whole gospel that says, come to Jesus and get fill in the blank. In some settings, it's come to Jesus and get health, come to Jesus and get wealth, come to Jesus and get success, come to Jesus and get prosperity, come to Jesus and get comfort, come to Jesus and get fill in the blank. No, that's not the gospel. None of that's the gospel. The gospel says, come to Jesus and get Jesus. He's the one we want. He's the one we need. We die to all these things. We're not after, it's not, Jesus is not a means to worldly ends. He's the end. You see the end in your life. See the one thing you want. The one thing you desire. This is my one desire, the psalmist says. I just want to be in your presence. Or is it, no, I, I really want uh, Success in this world plus Jesus. I really want this relationship plus Jesus. I really want, like, die to the stuff of this world. This is life. This is true life. In order to live, 
We have to die. And that leads to the third truth. It's what Jesus says right after this. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So truth number one, Jesus died to give us life. Truth number two, if we want to live, we have to die. Truth number three, Jesus calls us to die so that others can live. Jesus calls us to die so that others can live. Whoever would save his life will lose it. You focus on yourself, this world, it's a recipe for losing your life. But whoever loses his life for my sake and, so follow this, and the gospel's sake, for the sake of this message. Because let's just put it out there. It's not just you and me who, whose lives are represented by this rope. It's a campus full of people right now who are also going to come to an end point and are going to go to one of two eternal destinations. So, so who is going to die to your need for a certain reputation and die to what's comfortable to you? Who's going to die to themselves so that others might hear through your life the gospel and they might have eternal life in Jesus. And you've, you're surrounded day in and day out on this campus with people who don't have life and you know Jesus died to bring them life. So what do you need to die to in order to proclaim this message and lead others to life and not just on this campus. Can I put this map on the screen? This map of the world that represents different countries in the world. The green areas of this map represent areas in the world where the gospel has gone. The good news of Jesus has been proclaimed. There's access to it. So if you live in those places, obviously not everybody's a Christian in those places, for sure, but but people have access to the gospel in those places. The yellow areas on this map, they have less access to the gospel, but there's still some. And then the red areas on this map represent parts of the world that are classified as unreached by the gospel. And you heard it in that video. 3.2 billion people in these red areas that right now have little to no knowledge of the name of Jesus. Nobody's ever told them. Three billion people. Nobody's ever told them. But the good news of God's love in Jesus. I, I don't know if that's news to you, that there's three billion people in the world like that, or if you know that reality. But I want to encourage an arena full of people tonight. When you think about the point of your life, to refuse to turn a deaf ear to those three billion. Like I, I was with a group two weeks ago of about 50 influencers, innovators, leaders. You would recognize a lot of their names athletes, entertainers. 
uh, than Fortune 500 execs and entrepreneurs and uh, tech gurus working in all kinds of places that you would also recognize. Every one of them was a follower of Jesus. And every one of them, we got them together and we just said, hey, how can you use your life and leverage the grace God has given you for the spread of the gospel in these places? And I want to say the same thing that we were talking about with this group in this room. Like I, just, I look around this room and I see all the different gifts and skills and degrees and opportunities that are represented in this room to live for the spread of the gospel among all the nations of the world, to die to the pursuits of this world. More money, more success, bigger houses, more stuff, smooth career, coasterings through to retirement, go to heaven and ignore three billion people who've never heard the gospel. I want to urge you, don't waste your life on that. You'll get to the end and you'll realize you missed the point. You've been given, we have been given the greatest news in the world. There's people right around us in Auburn, Alabama, where I live in Washington, D.C., who need that good news. So let's live for that end today, tomorrow. And then as we look at our lives in the days to come, let's say, God, here's my life. Use me however you want to go, to give, to pray, to be a part of the spread of this gospel where it's not yet gone. Help me to die to all the stuff of this world, to sin in this world, and to live for what's going to matter for all of eternity. For three billion people, I've met them. I've seen their faces. When you walk up to someone and you say, have you ever heard about Jesus? They say, who is that? They don't know his name. And you're getting degrees that open wide doors into those places. I think about a, a girl graduated a nursing degree, and immediately started looking for a job, found one in the Middle East. There's tons of medical degrees. We'd love to help you get connected with them. Medical job openings. And she went, she got a job opening, she got a job doing nursing in this hospital in the heart of the Middle East. She has risen up in the ranks of nursing. She's now head over nursing in this significant hospital in the Middle East. She has a Bible study every single week in her office with Muslims. Nobody stops her. Do you know why? Because she's really, really good at nursing. And because she's decided to live her life so that, so that others can experience eternal life. She's decided to die to everybody else's plan in this world for her and to live for God's plan in this world for her. And that's just one person, nursing degree. I just look around this room, all the unique, get, like some of you love math. No idea why, but you, God has given you a passion for math, and there's opportunities to use numbers and statistics around the world for the glory of God, engineering, agriculture. I think about a guy I met in the heart of the Himalayas who's using uh, uh, fish waste, trout poop, to help provide nutrients in unreached villages, and he's sharing the gospel. If, if God can use trout poop for the spread of the gospel among the nations. He can use whatever you got to bring to the table. Question is, will you die so that others can live? So here's what I want to do. I want to ask these, these guys to come back up and lead us now to the main event.
tonight, I want to lead us to come before Jesus, having heard his word, to come face to face with him. And I want to invite us. So we're going to, we're going to go through just some, some time before the Lord in singing and in praying and in responding. And I just want you to think about your life right here. Your life and to see it in this lens. And I want us to come before Jesus and acknowledge who he is. Be honest with him about sin in our lives and about the pleasures and pursuits of this world that we're prone to run after. Or you say, I, I put my trust in Jesus. Or for, for others, maybe a refining moment in your life. And we just come before Jesus.
majesty, Lord of all, let every throne before him fall, the King of kings, oh come adore, our God who reigns Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries has the opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing the broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. The following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. First Peter 1.17, And if you address the Father... As one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time stay upon the earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. You were bought with the blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.19, as Paul was exhorting the Corinthian church not to be involved in sexual sin, he says, Or do you not know, 6.19, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your body. When Christ purchases you, you become his slave. And everyone in Scripture who taught here, every apostle, identified themselves as slaves of Christ. And the body of Christ was seen as slaves of Christ. Now, all throughout Scripture, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament points out this truth that true believers are slaves of God. True believers are slaves of God. Joshua 24, 29, the end of Joshua. And it came about after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant, and now in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word is doulos, 
the bond slave of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, died. Joshua was God's slave. He did what God asked him to do. Now, when David was instructing his son Solomon concerning the building of the temple, he says in 1 Chronicles 28, 8 through 9, So now in the sight of all Israel, in the assembly of the Lord, in the hearing of God, observe and seek after the commandments of the Lord your God in order that you may possess the good land and bequeath it to your sons after you forever. As for you, my son Solomon, this is David speaking to his son, know the God of your father and doulos him, serve him, duleo, with the whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. First Samuel 7, 3, Then Samuel spoke to the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and doulos him, duleo, serve him alone, he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. We see in the Psalms that this idea of service also encompasses the idea of worship of him. It is worship to serve the living God. In Samuel's farewell address, 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, and Samuel said to the people, do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve, duleo, the Lord with all your heart. Dulos is serve with all their heart. And at the end of this speech, he says, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart and consider the great things he has done for you. Serve him with all your heart and consider the great things. Malachi chapter 3, we see a parallelism. I mentioned it last week. Between the righteous and the wicked, they are described as those who are his douloses and those who aren't. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who douleos God and the one who does not douleo him. The righteous serve the Lord, the unrighteous do not. The unrighteous do not. It's all throughout Scripture. Okay, well, what are slaves to do? We don't really have a slave-master culture right now, so we don't really understand this very well. But what do slaves do? Very simply, a slave obeys his master. Let's look at the perfect example of Christ obeying the Father who became a slave for our sake. Philippians 2. Just turn back to Philippians 2 with me, verse 5. As Paul is exhorting the church to have the mindset of Christ, which I exhorted you earlier and exhort myself, this mind of considering others as more important than yourself by doing the will of God, that's how we consider others as more important than ourselves, by doing what God says in the midst of everyone he brings around us. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, or this mind, literally, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a doulos, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man. Here's what a doulos does. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ submitted himself to the Father, becoming a slave, being obedient to the point of death. And we see in Isaiah 53 that God says, My doulos, my servant, will justify the many. Servant Jesus. Paul makes it clear right off the bat in the beginning of the book that he is a slave of Christ. Don't forget, Titus. Don't forget who I am. Don't forget who we are. We are slaves 
of Christ. Paul understood he was owned by Christ. He was bound over to him to do his will and his will only. Now, if you don't like this idea of a slave master, I need to tell you something. First of all, as we've seen, it's extensively used in Scripture to describe our relationship to Christ. If you don't like this, you need to understand that God says this is the way it is. But secondly, Scripture reveals that no matter what, we are going to be a doulos. We are going to be a slave to something. We are going to be a slave to somebody, something. We will align our will either to serve a gracious and loving God who bought us with a great price, or we will serve the cruel taskmaster of sin and selfishness. You're going to be someone's slave no matter what. You will be enslaved to someone, and the choice by the power of the Holy Spirit is yours who you will be enslaved to. You will serve either the cruel taskmaster of sin and selfishness, or you will serve the Lord. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 6. The Apostle Paul makes this point very clearly. Romans chapter 6. We're going to look at verse 16. And this word that you'll see here is translated slave is doulos again. Do you not know that when you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are once slave whom you obey, whether sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Don't you know you're, who you present yourself to, you're a slave to? Either sin leading to death or obedience, that idea of obeying, to righteousness. But God be thanked, and let me, that's the wrong version. I want to read from my Bible here. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed. They believed the word of God that was taught to them. And Paul says, thanks be to God for that. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves or douloses of righteousness. They were bond slaves of God. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of these things is death. You were a slave to sin. Everyone before Christ was a slave to sin, ashamed of those things, a slave to sin. And he's saying, now that you've been freed from that, don't subject yourself to that again, because ultimately, earlier in chapter 6, you are in Christ, and Christ died to sin, therefore you are in Christ, you can be dead to sin also. He says, but now, verse 20, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, having been made a doulos of God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're going to be a slave to somebody. And we all understand what slavery to ourselves is like. We all understand what it's like when we sin and we haven't confessed it and we are a slave to those sins, right? That bondage that comes from sin. But God, through Christ, has set us free. He has paid the price. We have been bought with a price. And folks, it is crucial that we understand that we are slaves to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's impossible to walk in a manner worthy if you don't understand who owns you and thus to whom you are to offer yourself to and to obey. Concerning Epaphras, 
the one who Paul called a bond slave twice in Colossians 4, one pastor writes, Epaphras was a man who was not at his own disposal, but was a man, his master's purchased property, bought to serve his master's needs, to be at his beck and call at every moment. The slave's sole business is to do as he is told. Christian service, therefore, means first and foremost, living out a slave relationship with one's savior. We have full-scale rebellion in the church these days, people who don't believe this at all, who decide how they'll do church, which churches they will go to, how they'll live their Christian lives, apart from the Word of God. God has directed us, our master, in terms of how he wants us to be operating as a church, how he wants us to function as believers, and we are to obey that. If you are saved... You have been bought with the price, the precious blood of the Lamb. And he's a good master. He's not a bad master. You've been saved from the terrible, evil taskmaster of sin to a gracious master who loves you, who intercedes for you. A wonderful master. One who, while we were yet sinners, died for us. Who gave himself for us who can identify with our weaknesses, who can sympathize with our weaknesses. It's a good master. Let me ask you, do you see yourself as a servant of Christ? Right out of Paul's mouth, the first thing he says, Paul, a bond slave of God. Does that describe you when you think about yourself in your day-to-day actions, in your moment-to-moment decisions? Do you think of yourself as his servant bound over to do his will? In the discussions you have in your family, with your spouse, with other people, at your work, do you see yourself as his slave? Some of you don't see yourself that way because you're bound in sin, but the Lord Jesus Christ is a gracious God who died for your sins according to the Scriptures and rose according to the Scriptures. He is a gracious God. You need to call out to him to save you and he will. Gracious God, he will save you from the slavery of sin and the result, death, and then eternal death. If God were to place your name in his word, would he call you a bond slave? Does your life exhibit evidence that you are not your own? Here's evidence here. Husbands, love your wife. If you don't love your wife, then you're not submitting to your master. Now, I'm not saying we don't make mistakes and we sin, but by and large, if you are not willing to obey that command, you are a rebellious slave. Wives, if you are not willing to, in the context of the Scripture, submit to your husbands, not to sin, but as God has ordained, then you're being rebellious. Older women not teaching the younger women to love their husbands and teach your children. There's all sorts of things in Scripture that God commands us to do and empowers us by His Spirit. And I want to ask you, are you a faithful Willing slave or a rebellious slave? There's many ways that we rebel against our master. Oh, how many churches and pastors preach a gospel that makes Jesus our slave. Yes, Jesus became a bondservant, but he didn't become our slave. He was a slave of the Father's will. Jesus came to serve, yes, to give his life as a ransom, but understand this, he was submitting to the will of the Father for our benefit Isaiah 53, 8, I mentioned it before. God calls him my servant, or literally my doulos, my slave. Yes, Jesus became a slave, a bondservant, perfect example for our humility. Yet in the context, Jesus never became our slave. 
He loves us and gave himself for us, but he does not exist to fulfill our every need at our beck and call. Now I ask you, have you believed a gospel that makes Jesus your slave? They may not say that, but in essence, the gospel that you have heard and believed is a gospel that makes Jesus your slave. A servant boy in heaven to fix all of your problems. That describes your relationship. Dear Lord, fix this. Dear Lord, fix that. Dear Lord, fix this. Rather than Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. That's not the gospel. Jesus say, servant boy of us. The living God voluntarily became a slave to do the Father's will to redeem us. True believers have the incredibly wonderful privilege to be slaves of a living God, a wonderful master who gave himself for us. Paul was a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you, whose slave are you? On a day-to-day, moment-by-moment, thought and action basis. So then what can we learn from this greeting? I think, first of all, that we are bond slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, I believe we need to see that we need to live in the context of what God has called us to do. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bond servant of God. And then he says, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Did you notice Paul identified himself, verse 1, as an apostle of Jesus Christ? Now, with this in mind, you might be asking the question, well, what's an apostle? And I want to share a couple passages of Scripture to help us understand what an apostle is. There seems to be a lot of confusion these days among charismatic churches concerning the issue of what an apostle is. Now, most charismatic churches are loosely united based on bad doctrine that they share in common concerning spiritual gifts. What Scripture calls literally grace gifts or charismata. And many charismatic churches have apostles, male and female. The sad thing is Scripture is very clear what the qualifications for an apostle is. And it is apparent these churches are ignoring these truths. So what is an apostle from Scripture? The word apostle in Greek is apostolos. It is derived from the word apostello. Apa means from. Stello means to send. The word came to mean sent one. Now in the New Testament, the word apostolos, translated apostle sometimes or sent one, is used in two basic ways. And sometimes you'll see, like in Acts 14, verse 14, that Paul and Barnabas were called apostles, but Barnabas wasn't one of the twelve. He was a sent one. In context, they were sent together on a mission. You'll see it used two ways. First of all, in the general sense of a messenger, a sent one. 2 Corinthians 8.23, a sent one. Someone who is sent on a mission. But secondly, the term is used more often than not to designate the office, the official office of an apostle, those specifically chosen by Jesus Christ. And Scripture reveals that Jesus himself commissioned the twelve, one ultimately being the son of perdition, And I believe that he replaced him ultimately with Paul, commissioning him on the Damascus Road. Do you remember the Apostle Paul? Saul before so had it all. Philippians chapter 3, he was religiously up there. I mean, he could claim anything on his religious resume more than anybody in terms of religiousness. Philippians 3, although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, he said basically true believers don't put confidence in the flesh. And he says, well, here's my testimony. I used to do that. Although I might have confidence even in the flesh, Philippians 3, 4, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day 
the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever these things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. He was dead set on his earthly religious purpose. He was a violent aggressor on his way to persecute and kill Christians the way he was advancing beyond his contemporaries, religiously speaking, yet something happened to the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road. Something happened to Saul. Listen to his testimony, Acts 26. Let's turn there. It's it's a little long. Acts 26, verse 9. We see Paul relaying to Felix his conversion. So then I thought to myself, I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme And being furiously enraged at them, here's a picture of people that are against Christ, basically. I kept pursuing them to the foreign cities. Verse 12, while thus engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests at midday, O king, this is King Agrippa, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speak to me in a Hebrew dialect. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice persecution of his people is persecuting Christ. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who art thou, O Lord? See, Paul didn't know Jesus. He says, who art thou, O Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.